Today, as we continue our look at Matthew chapter 13, we're going to look at the mustard seed parable, as well as the parable of the leaven. But before we start, I want to tell you the story of a friend of mine. His name is Josh. Josh was probably the most successful basketball player that ever came out of my small high school that I attended. He didn't actually finish his time at our school, but we still claim him because he went there for two years. Um, But what's amazing about him is he's one of those guys that kind of worked his way into being an amazing basketball player. He was six foot seven, so right there you automatically think he probably should be playing basketball. But he was actually really good. He went to a small college where he got the attention of some pro scouts. He played pro ball in Europe and then eventually became a member of uh, the developmental team for the Blazers and then for the Nuggets and then for a few others. He played some preseason games before he uh, hurt himself and wasn't able to play anymore. He's, he's turned it into a pretty good career, though. He works for Nike. He is a uh, basketball shoe uh, specialist, which sounds like a pretty cool job. And he's one of those guys you just go, this is a basketball player, right? But what you don't know about Josh is that when I knew Josh, he would have gotten the vote in the yearbook, least likely to be a professional basketball player. Because when I knew Josh, his freshman and sophomore year of high school, he was about four foot three, four foot four. He was pretty small. It's one of those guys that played basketball and he would raise his hand and he would be like, hey, yeah, I'm gonna be a professional basketball player someday. Well, as a sophomore, yeah, he sprouted up to almost five feet tall. And we were like, oh, that's cute, Josh. You don't want that to be how people talk about your career choices in the future. But see, Josh had learned all sorts of skills with basketball that would pay off when he sprouted. He learned how to dribble. He learned how to shoot. He learned how to shoot from really far away because that meant the big, tall guys couldn't block him. And then finally, when the Lord saw fit to have him grow, he developed into an incredible basketball player. But if you were to take a snapshot of Josh as a freshman and take a snapshot of a couple of other boys in my class who were already six feet tall, and you said, which of these will be a basketball player 10 years from now playing professional ball, nobody would have chosen Josh. Isn't it interesting? I think the Lord has a sense of humor sometimes. But here, this is a good picture of what we see with the church. Today's parables are all about small beginnings and grand finishes. Because the kingdom of God is like my friend Josh. Small, humble beginnings and then amazing success in the end. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to start in verse 34, actually. So if you remember where we've been, we've been all through the chapter 13. This is all these stories. We call it kingdom stories or parables. Parable being uh, setting something beside something else so you can understand it. That's what the word means, to set beside. And so Jesus has been speaking in parables. He started off with the sower, and then we did the the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, and now we're smack dab right in the middle. But we need to remind ourselves why Jesus is speaking in parables. And the disciples asked this. They said, why are you speaking in parables? And Jesus said earlier in chapter 13, he said, it's to make sure that those that are supposed to hear, hear, And those that are not supposed to hear, don't hear, right? It's to to confuse those who are not a part of the kingdom and to give that encoded message to those of the kingdom. Well, here in verses 34 and 35, Jesus gives us another reason, actually Matthew gives us another reason why Jesus spoke in parables. This is what it says. 
All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 78, verse 2. Now, I was going to read Psalm 78 to you, but it's about 65 verses long, and so it would take up most of our time. Psalm 78 was written by Asaph, and it was a recounting of the history of Israel in song to remind them of where they'd been. And what Matthew has done here is, is Matthew has said, not only is that what we do, but we also have this prophecy coming that Jesus fulfills. This is what we call in the Bible, we call it typology, in that there is something that happens in the Old Testament, which is a shrouded version of what's going to happen in the New Testament. And you can see this throughout. And once you start kind of looking for it, you can say, oh, this person is like Jesus. And this is foreshadowing Jesus. See, like any good author, and some of you in this room, you've read the classics, you know that a good author likes to foreshadow what's coming. Now, poor authors foreshadow when you're like, yeah, they just spoiled the ending. But the good authors give you little hints along the way, and that's really what God did in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a mirror being held up to us to look in the mirror and go, yes, that's what this is. And so this is a foreshadowing of Jesus' coming, this song that the Israelites sang way back when Asa first wrote it. Because see, Jesus is turning, a po- there's a turning point here in 13. You know, last week we talked about the wheat and the weeds, and we talked about how he went inside to, to tell them the explanation of the parable. From this point on, Jesus is no longer going to be sharing these parables with the crowds. He's going to be talking specifically to his disciples. So this is kind of a a turning point here. So I wanted to point that out before we got into what these parables actually mean. So whenever there's a parable, we know that there is a question that is being asked. Sometimes it's verbalized. You know, the disciples are really good at that, especially Peter asking a question that everybody's thinking, right? But here, there's a question that's going on. And the question is, why is the kingdom coming this way? Why is the kingdom not coming like we expected? Why is it that, Jesus, you're hanging out with a bunch of bums up by the Sea of Galilee and not walking into Rome and taking over the joint? And if we think about it, that's very similar to what we see today as well. You know, we we turn on the news, they're not covering the movements of the kingdom. They're not covering, oh, this last Sunday, there were four people who gave their lives to the Lord, and the angels in heaven rejoiced, and the God of the universe was glorified. Not going to be covered on the news. Instead, they're covering, hey, guess what? Someone saw a coyote in Gladstone. (laughs) Or, hey, guess what? So-and-so is divorcing so-and-so, who were both in movies that nobody's seen, but they're really good. Or better yet, we have shows about television shows. We have shows that talk about the television shows that people are watching or are not watching. See, our world doesn't focus on the things of the kingdom. Because the kingdom's not getting the retweets. It's not getting the shares. It's not giving the likes. It's not making the money. It's not out there like the world wants it to be. And so the world is not covering it. So we have that same question then that the disciples had. Why is it That if this is God's kingdom, if what we're doing here is not make-believe, which it's not, then why is it that it's not taking off like wildfire? Why is it resisted so much? Where is it growing? What is it doing? Lord, why are you doing it this way? This is the question that the disciples have 
with this passage. And Jesus has been answering it in three different ways. The first way was in our first two parables. The sower, remember that's the one with the different types of soil, three of which were not fruitful and one which was. And then the wheat and the tares, how he sows good seed, but the devil comes and puts bad seed right beside. Those first two were talking about why no one is flocking to the kingdom. And Jesus says, some of, some of their soil's bad. Some of them are seeds that were planted by the evil one. Today, we're asking the question, how, how is it gonna? Is it growing? We can't see it. Is it actually growing, Jesus? And he's going to answer that question in the affirmative. And then next week, we get to hear, how does one become a part of the kingdom? And so there's these three questions that are kind of working from each other. Why is the kingdom not coming like we, we saw? Is it actually here? And then if it's here, how do I join it? What's unique about these parables today is that these parables, the disciples don't ask for an explanation. They get it. In their minds, they say, we got this. We understand this. And so we're going to attempt to get it as well. Look at verse 31. He, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it grows, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now a mustard seed was something that was proverbially used by teachers to talk about something really, really small. It's about the size of the tip of lead in a mechanical pencil. It's about a millimeter in diameter. It would take 750 mustard seeds to make an ounce of mustard seeds. Literally, we could drop mustard seeds on you and you wouldn't feel them hitting you. They are so small. However, they have been known to grow up to 12 to 15 feet high like a tree. So in this parable, and if you want to kind of imagine it in our kind of parlance, it's like a rhododendron bush or a lilac bush. They can grow up big and look like a tree. So this parable is all about exceeding expectations. If you were to look around and look at the different seeds, you would go, wow, that's a big seed. That should be a big plant. This is a small seed. That should be a small plant. But in actuality, we see the exact opposite. At the end of this, we see, it says, so the birds of the air come and make their nests in the branches. This is an allusion to Daniel chapter 4, verse 21. This is where King Nebuchadnezzar is asking Daniel for an interpretation of a dream. And his kingdom had spread all over the place so that other kingdoms were coming underneath it for protection. And so we see that the birds make their home. This talks about the extent of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is going to spread out that even being near someone from the kingdom actually gives you some protection and some goodness. One author writes, the Lord is saying that, you have no real, that there is no connection between the smallness of a seed and the largeness of the end result. You can have a small seed issuing a very large bush. Barley seed gives you a barley plant, and that's pretty good-sized. Wheat seed or corn, also very good size. But for a plant the size of a period on your paper to grow into a tree is astounding. Now, before we get into any more of what this means, so that's, that's just kind of the, the summary of it, you will see occasionally people attacking this. And they'll say, see, right here, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. And most of us would be like, okay, I, what? And they would say, well, science has shown us that there are seeds that are smaller than mustard seeds. 
There are seeds that are three quarters of a millimeter in diameter, so therefore Jesus is not God. Well, let me just tell you that they are wrong, okay? What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, and you can see it in the words, the garden plants in verse 32. It says it's larger than all the garden plants. That's a word that's usually translated as herbs. It's the word lankon in the Greek. It means a plant for eating. And so when we look at it this way, and we see what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, of all the seeds that make plants of things we eat, this is the smallest. And guess what? It is still the smallest, all right? There is nothing that beats it. And in Israel at this time, it was the smallest by far of all the seeds that anyone knew about. So either way, we've got that Jesus knows what he's talking about, and we can, we can get that he is exactly who he says he is. So what does this mustard seed thing mean for us? Well, it means that sometimes things start off and they're small and they're ineffective. And his disciples were probably tempted to try to make something big out of it. You know, the best plans for growing a movement and things like that. But Jesus is saying, hey, you don't need to worry about the growth. That's my job. You don't need to worry about whether it has a big start or a small start because that's on me. Instead, it is your job to obey and follow. And we'll see this in a minute. J.C. Ryle said there were five problems with Christianity and its founding. Five problems that would make it least likely to grow up into anything big. The first one is its founder, Jesus, right? I mean, most unlikely to start a religion. Not only that, he ended his life by dying as a criminal on a cross. So right there, we've got the founder is not somebody who's really smart, not somebody who's really well-connected, not somebody who lives a long and very illustrious life. Instead, he lived a mere 33 years and died the death of a criminal. The second problem with Christianity is that these people who are following Jesus at first, I mean, talk about a group of nothings, a group of zeros. Probably by the time Jesus went up to heaven, there might have been about a thousand people, but they were not impressive. I'm reading a biography of the, the city of Jerusalem, and in it, it talks about all these other messiahs that have come along, and, and no, no surprise here, Jesus is, is the one that had the smallest group while he was here. There were others where people flocked to the, to the desert to be with the guy, and there were tens of thousands of Jews thinking this person was the messiah, and guess what? We've forgotten all their names, but yet this Jesus is stuck around. The third thing he says is the preachers, the people that Jesus sent out to teach, they were fishermen, a tax collector, and a zealot, uneducated, unlearned, ignorant men from the backwaters. And yet, what does it say in Acts? These men turned the world upside down. The fourth thing we see is the starting point. If you're going to start a movement, you're going to Alexandria, you're going to Athens, you're going to Rome, even Cairo, Babylon, go someplace big. But instead, this starts in Judea, near the Sea of Galilee, in the middle of nowhere. And then lastly, the first main doctrine that Jesus, their God, was crucified. The Jews call this a stumbling block. The Greeks or the, the non-Jewish people call it foolishness. I mean, what a, what a way to start it. One of the, the things that we see is that this leads to everybody persecuting them. 
Like this is equal opportunity persecution of the early Christians. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the Romans, everybody is persecuting the Christians because this makes no sense. And yet in spite of all that, Jesus says, don't worry, it's going to grow. I mean, how, how encouraging would these words have been to Jesus' followers? Because as soon as Jesus dies and goes up to him, now they've witnessed a miracle, and yet people are still not flocking. Yeah, there are a thousand people that come to know the Lord, and then 3,000 in the book of Acts. But it's not like the whole Roman Empire just goes, well, we were wrong, let's follow Jesus. Instead, they go, you know, that Jesus guy may have resurrected from the dead. Let's kill his followers. They treat it that way. So how encouraging would these words be to Jesus' followers that Jesus promised us and he's going to make good on it. The mystery here is that this kingdom grew at all. There was no military coup. There was no revolution overthrowing the government. Instead, it was person to person, talking to the next person. And to this day, there are Christians all over the globe from that initial spark. Like the seed underground, it is spreading. The kingdom is growing. Whether it's in an alleyway where a, an abandoned child is saved, or in, in a home where someone provides someone a cooked meal, a warm meal, or in a different home where someone goes and is with someone as they are dying, the kingdom, like a seed, is unseeable, but it is growing and it is spreading. You know, we like to think about the kingdom of God spreading through huge things, right? We want big, huge, tens of thousands of people coming to know the Lord. Those are the people that are doing the most for the kingdom. And I'll tell you, that is amazing when the Lord does that. But the most likely way he does it is off to the side where no one can see it. And sometimes the Lord gives us glimpses of that, right? Sometimes the Lord allows us to see someone, one of his followers, who does something amazing that at the time they thought was a waste and the Lord goes, look what I can do with your waste. A good example of that is a man by the name of David Brainerd. David Brainerd. How many have ever heard of David Brainerd? A couple of you, a few of you, okay. David Brainerd was a young man at the age of 21, became a Christian. He went off and decided he was going to go to Yale, because Yale at the time was a seminary. And as he was there, he figured something out. He figured out that his professors were not Christian kind of makes for a hard seminary experience. And so he calls out the professors and says, you know, you all aren't actually believers, and they kicked him out. So he's like, what am I supposed to do? I need an education. Well, at that point, Princeton was getting ready to be founded. Um, it was called the College of New Jersey at that point, but it was going to be founded, and, and he just didn't feel comfortable going there. So he went off and became a missionary. And he went into the wild and started wish, ministering to Native Americans, and for four years, he did that, kind of in obscurity. He had a few converts here and there, but he contracted tuberculosis. And the tuberculosis started making him sicker and sicker and sicker. So much so that at the age of 28, he died while visiting John, Jonathan Edwards. So a life that didn't accomplish much, right? Except for one thing. David Brainerd, because of his suffering because of the things he was dealing with he dealt with some severe depression he dealt with some severe anxiety and he found that writing his thoughts out and taking them to the lord blessed him and he kept those and he wrote those down 
And when he passed away, Jonathan Edwards took that diary and he had it made into a book and he had it published. This book has changed hundreds of thousands of people's lives. It has been the number one instigator, the number one push to push people to go out and be missionaries. I cannot tell you that if you, if you were to go, and I, I'll include a link in tomorrow's Monday morning gleanings to his life, if you go and you look at the people, the missionaries out there who have said, this is the man that inspired me to go be a missionary, a man who went into the field, contracted tuberculosis, and died from it, is the reason why I am now out here as a missionary. You will be astonished at the names. The names are amazing. People who've done amazing work, way more than David Brainerd as we would measure it. But in God's eyes, this little teeny life, seven years of serving the Native Americans has become the impetus for many to go. One missionary said, there's only two books that every single missionary needs. The Bible and the life and times of David Brainerd, which was his journal. How amazing is that? I mean, I think about it. I wonder what David Brainerd was thinking other than I can't wait to see God and stop having my sufferings. But would he have ever imagined that that small seven years on earth with a few converts coughing up blood and dying in your bed with a fever would lead to an incredible outpouring of missionaries across the world? What a phenomenal way. I love that the Lord does that. See, we need, to not, we need to not ever put down the power that the Lord has and how he can use any of us by ourselves. A single minister, a single missionary, a single reformer, a single Christian can change the outlook of an entire civilization. And it has happened over and over and over again. J.C. Ryle again says, To the eye of man, the work may appear too great and the instrument employed quite unequal to it. And that's just the way the Lord likes it, right? He goes, God, God goes, I'm going to use that guy. I'm going to use that lady. And those are the ones that I'm going to show. Why? Because it's going to show how much power I have. Yes, the church grew exponentially in the first few pages of the book of Acts. But behind the scenes, there were countless husbands talking to wives, wives talking to husbands, masters talking to slaves, slaves talking to masters, friend to friend, brother to sister, all of these connections all over the place that led to this groundswell, this permeating of every single area of the world. The kingdom is massive. So never underestimate the kingdom of God. It starts small. It starts small not only in history, but it starts small in our lives. It starts small in our community, but it can grow and grow and grow. So what does this mean? Look at Luke 17, verse 20. Jesus being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. It's not coming in ways that you would expect. And isn't this what we're celebrating with Advent, right? I mean, seriously, like, you're going you're gonna to start a religion. I, okay, I know that we've, you know, kind of gotten used to this Christmas story. I mean, I love the last two days. I've decorated several Christmas trees. My family, we've had Christmas music on for a while now. Trying to keep my kids from not listening to it year-round is really hard. Pray for us, please. Um, no, but seriously, the... the we think about it, right? And we go, oh yeah, it's a manger. It's a... Okay, a manger for the place where you're going to give birth. I mean, I don't think there's any ladies in here like, sign me up. 
and a feeding trough instead of that nice, warming, comfy bed that they put the babies in right away, right? A stable and smelly animals. Now, I know when you watch the cartoons, it's the cute little animals, and there's the little donkey, and he's just sitting there, right? I mean, there's, they've made plenty of movies about that. It's not the way it happened. It was the smelly section of the stable, right? And that's just the start. Then he goes and he gets all of these rejects to be his followers. And he goes and lives in Nazareth, which is in the middle of nowhere. So much so that people have the phrase, nothing good can come from Nazareth, right? So weak, so small, so useless, so pathetic. And yet God is in it. God grows it. So the seed was planted from a small beginning and it has grown into a mighty, mighty bush, mighty tree. So now let's look at the parable of the leaven. Verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was leavened. Okay, till it was leavened means until the dough had risen. So let me tell you what this kind of means. So leaven is not like yeast like we use today. The way leaven worked back in this time was they would take a piece of old bread and they'd let it kind of ferment and they would take that piece and then they would knead it into the dough so that the dough would rise and it would become leavened. It would become big. So it's a past piece of bread added to a new piece of bread, okay? Then it says she hid it, which means she, she kneaded it in there, right? In three measures of flour, Okay? That doesn't really do much for us. What is three measures? Well, this actually is 50 to 60 pounds of flour. So this is a big batch of flour. Now, this is not unheard of. It's kind of a lot of bread. It would probably go stale before you could eat it unless you were having a big, big family gathering. But what's interesting here is that this measurement, which is called an ephah, right, which is what the Hebrew word for it is, okay? In the Greek, it's sada, three sadas. This is the exact amount of bread that Sarah makes for Jesus and the two angels that visited her and Abraham. It's also the exact amount of bread that Gideon makes for Jesus when Jesus shows up to Gideon when Gideon's asking for help. Now you're going, wait a sec, Jesus, Old Testament, John, you're forgetting something. Just bear with me. In the Old Testament, Jesus appears. There's some pre-incarnate times where Jesus shows up. And each of the times Jesus shows up, they make more bread than he could possibly eat as a sacrifice, as saying, here is the bread. I think that's really cool. We can talk about that afterwards if you have more questions about it. But the key here is, is she makes a ton of bread and this little teeny piece of yeast, this little teeny piece of leaven, sorry, leavens the whole thing. Now, leaven in the Bible is many times used for evil. Spurgeon says this, although leaven is usually a symbol of evil, yet it may here be a fair representation of the kingdom of heaven itself. For it operates mysteriously and secretly, yet powerfully, till it permeates the whole of man's nature and the gospel will keep on winning its way till the whole world yet will be leavened by it. Okay, so leaven in the Old Testament is used for uncleanness from time to time. However, here... Jesus is flipping that on its head. Because look what he says. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Not the dough is like the kingdom of heaven, and then leaven comes in. Instead, it's saying leaven is like the kingdom of heaven. So you have this dough, and the kingdom of heaven is inserted into it. The kingdom, though small and nearly invisible, will permeate all of it. 
Okay? So remember, in the Bible, sometimes we see different words used for different things. So for example, the, the devil is called a lion, but so is Jesus. Water is a restoring gift. Other times, it's judgment and punishment. So this leaven here, how do we understand this? How do we get our minds wrapped around it? Because leaven is bad in places in the Bible. What we get at is that leaven means to permeate. Okay, that's a cool word. It means to spread throughout. And so when Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, he's saying, don't let their teaching get inside of you and spread out into all of you. Because it would be then, it would be sin, and it would be sin unto death because it's throughout. So leaven is positive at times. There's actually two places in the Old Testament where leaven is commanded to be sacrificed to God in loaves. In uh, Leviticus 7, 13 and 7, or 23, 17. So how do we get this? Because, you know, if, if you remember your Passover, when we celebrate communion, we do this with unleavened bread. Why was, why was leaven told to be left out of the Passover bread? Now watch this. And this just blew my mind when I saw this. Where does the leaven come from that they would put in the bread as they were getting ready to leave. So remember the Passover, right? It's the 10th plague. The Israelites are there. They've had nine plagues. They're to make bread. And I'd always heard, make bread without leaven because they got to go, right? And that could well be part of it. But catch this. He's saying, don't bring any of the Egyptian bread with us. Don't allow any of the stuff that the Egyptians have done to come with an influence. Because where would the leaven have come from? From bread they'd previously made where? In Egypt. Don't bring the leaven of the Egyptians with us. And isn't that a picture of what it means to become a believer? We are to die to the old self. Not die to most of the old self, but we're to die to all of the old self. Don't allow a little bit of that leaven to stay and see, this is the problem that we run into. We try to make sure we, we are a Christian and we want to follow God, but we do want to hold on to this little spot. But the thing about sin is it's like leaven. Not because leaven and sin have the same characteristics, but that sin will spread to the entire person if we allow the leaven in. So this is what we see here with this leaven, except for it's the positive version of that. Jesus is saying, when my leaven gets into you, it spreads to all of you. When my leaven, when my people get into the world, it spreads everywhere. It can't help but permeate everything. Because see, the Holy Spirit is not done working, right? We spend a lot of time and we talk about, oh yeah, when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit's pulling on your heart. He doesn't stop pulling, he doesn't stop working. The rest of your life is him pulling you closer and closer to God. That's what he's about. It's the leavening of you. It's the sanctification, which is a, which is a fancy word for saying becoming more like Jesus. That's the leaven spreading in each of us. So the point is this. Just as a small portion of leaven leavens the whole loaf, a small portion of Christians leavens the whole earth. And didn't we see that? Didn't we see that here? And we see this on display, don't we? Let me give you a little history lesson. Rome was a pagan kingdom, completely pagan, until four centuries later where it's completely Christian. Constantine came along, right? And Constantine is the, always the, the, the politician, right? He became a Christian right about the time that the Christians in Rome were about 60%. So 
smart politician, right? Because you don't want to be against the people that are voting you into office or keeping you there. So he became a Christian. How did this change happen? Jesus dies about 33 AD. Paul is martyred about 63 AD. John the apostle dies around 90. From that point all the way until the fourth century, Christianity goes from persecuted everywhere they go. Whenever anything bad happened, they said, you know what we need to do? We need to kill some Christians. That'll make everything better. And that's what Nero did. The, the city of Rome burns. He goes, who can I blame this on? Hey, let's blame on the Christians. And countless emperors did this throughout. So how did Christians go from being this persecuted sect to being the number one group of people in the empire? Well, let me tell you how this happened. Was it military campaigns? No. Was it voting in the right politicians? Nope. Was it getting a good educational system that taught only Christian values? Nope. This is how they did it. They did it by caring for the least of the world. See, one of the things that they did, and this is what Christians were known for, and this is going to sound like some of the stuff we're dealing with in our culture right now, but in this time, if a Roman family of any amount of means started having daughters, they would get rid of them. And what they would do is they would take the daughters. After you've had one daughter in the culture, the Roman culture, having multiple daughters was out. Because guess what? You had to send your money off with those girls. And the men didn't want to do that. The families didn't want to do that. So what they would do is they would take the daughter, they would take her down, and they'd go find an alley, and they'd set her in the alley, and they'd walk away, and they'd say, well, she's going to be exposed and die. And the Christians saw this, and they went, that's an image bearer. That's somebody who is made in God's image. And so they would go, and they would scoop up these children, and they would take them and raise them as their own. And you're like, how could anyone kill Christians for that? But listen to the insanity. It's going to sound like now, okay, just so you know. The insanity was the Roman family that that girl came from said, they're taking that girl, and then they're going to blackmail us for her dowry. We got to kill those Christians so they stop saving our children from dying. How insane is that, right? But that's the world that these Christians were living in. Whenever there was a disease outbreak, everybody ran from the cities. The Christians ran to the cities. The Christians would look for people to help. The Christians would take care of the needs. And here's the thing. They didn't just do things and hope that people figured out it was because of Jesus. They did them and they said, we're doing this because of Jesus. Because he loves you. Because he cares for you. So they took on these outcasts, and what happened is these outcasts and these, these, these people that were hurting, they learned about Jesus and they were transformed. And it changed the entirety of the Roman Empire because the kingdom permeates out into the world through us. Because look at the next part of at Luke 17. I read you 20. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, The kingdom's not coming in a ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is. Or look, there it is. Instead, the kingdom is in the midst of you. The kingdom is in us. We are the kingdom. We are the ones that God Christ used to change his world. We are the leaven. We are the ones meant to go into the world to change the world. And the whole world has heard about this. Wycliffe the Bible translators say that we've got 97% of all of the people in the world can read the Bible in a language that they can read. 97%.
We've still got a several thousand languages to go so that every language in the world has the Bible in its own language. But we're getting there. 97% of the world can hear it, can read it. So this growth is happening. This growth is leading to permeating throughout the world. The kingdom changes everything it touches. Just because it's small does not mean it will not influence. So these two parables, they kind of come as a package deal. We need, to kind of, we need to understand this. So Jesus is saying this mustard seed is going to grow into this big plant, this big tree, right? And he's representing that this is going to grow into a mighty group of followers of Jesus Christ. And he's saying how it happens is by the leaven getting in there and working its way out. So they go together. The means and the ends. The ends is that we're going to have this tree that the world is going to flock to, but at the same time, it's going to happen because the leaven is working its way into every aspect of the world. And it's the same for us too, right? As the Holy Spirit works into us and he begins leavening all of us, we begin becoming a kingdom outpost, each of us, an ambassador for the king. What a cool thing to be. So what does this mean for us today? Well, First of all, the kingdom is not invisible. It's right here in front of me if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is right here. It is growing. You know, it's interesting in our world, there's a lot of, of people that will point out that Christianity is, is, is hypocritical at times or that Christianity has done bad things. And that is true. There are people that have claimed the name of Christ, especially after Constantine where an entire nation was considered Christian. Now it became a label that anybody could have. And so that meant unredeemed people are doing what unredeemed people do. But the thing about it is, is that Christianity has so permeated our culture that even here in the dark People's Republic of Oregon, in this dark place, we still see that there is a huge influence of Christianity throughout. We can't make sense of our world without using Christianity. What are rights? What is equality? What is love? What is justice? All of these words did not come from Buddhism. They did not come from Islam. They did not come from Hinduism. And they definitely did not come from evolutionary processes with no God in them. Instead, they came from Christianity. So it's kind of ironic that our society wants to attack Christianity using Christianity's guidelines that they have adopted without even knowing that they've adopted them. One author writes this, Even now the most educated classes in America have abandoned Christianity. And when religion is in sharp decline among the populace, Christianity has seen as, as, as enduring. It's pervasive influence that we cannot condemn for the church's failures without invoking Christian teachings to do so. In fact, the idea of hope, which is a historical, progr historical progress, is a uniquely Christian idea. Even this idea that things can get better, this comes from Christianity. It doesn't come from atheism. It doesn't come from all these other amalgam of religions. Instead, it comes from Christianity. And if we think about it for a second, if we go, oh, wait a second, if Christianity is just another religion like all the others, where's the temple to Hercules in America today? Where's the Gnostics? Where are the Stoics, the Epicureans? Where, where, is it, where, where is Aphrodite's temple? And countless other religions that at this time would have been packed on their day of service, their day of worship. 
Remember, Paul is writing to some of these places, right? And he's saying, don't go and be over where they're worshiping because there's this big, grandiose thing going on. Where are all of those today? The answer is, they're in history books. But yet, this Christianity thing has stuck around. Why has it stuck around? Philosophies and ideologies almost always seem stronger than the church. Philosophies and ideologies fly while the church limps on. Philosophies and ideologies end up dying, and yet the church limps on. We should stick with the church. No, this is not a victory lap. This is not be like, hey, we beat Zeus, and hey, we're better than all these other religions from this time period. That's not what this is about. Instead, I want you guys to see the disciples had to trust that Jesus was telling them the future was going to be that way. And they didn't even get to see it. For us, we're looking backwards on it now. And we can say, Jesus said that this Christianity thing, which started with 12 rejects and the leader dying, is going to grow into a worldwide phenomenon that has believers in every single country, on every single place on this planet right now, many of them worshiping. If Jesus got that right, which there's no way he should have gotten that right, we better pay attention to what else he said. Because he has shown us that he knows what's going to happen. That he is in control of what's happening. Jesus keeps his word. So how does this church spread? How is Christ spreading the church right now? Well, I'm going to give you two verses and then I'm going to explain them to you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Ezekiel 36 25 and 26, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from your idols I will cleanse you, and I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So the way that this world has been affected by Christ is not because Jesus came in with armies later on. It's not because Constantine changed his mind. It's because of the fact that Christians are new creations. And when we're new creations, we permeate our societies for the good. We go and we bring in. See, we are the new leaven. We are what this world needs. We need to be out there in the world pressing in the leaven. And yes, there's going to be times the world's going to kick against that. But that's what we are called to do. That's the way the kingdom spreads. It spreads when our leaven infects those around us. This is how we go from, well, Christ is a cool thing, to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. So how do we do this? What does this look like? Well, it looks like obeying God's commands. Now you go, oh, man, you had to go there. We have to obey God and do all these things. Isn't God an ultimate killjoy? Doesn't he say, here's all the list of things you can't do? But see, here's where we get it wrong. The Ten Commandments are not a list of things we can't do because God wants to kill our joy. Instead, they're a list of things we can't do because we need to look like our Father. If you turn all of the Ten Commandments around into positive statements, they are all adjectives. They're all describing God. And so what he's doing, and I love this, is that when we obey God, we're putting God on display. We're putting God right out there in front so that they can see and go, that's who God is. And yes, they'll get it wrong from time to time when they see us obeying. They'll go, you Christians are trying to earn your way. 
to heaven. And that's when you step in and go, I can't. Jesus is the one who earned my way. I'm just responding. I mean, I love, love that question. If someone goes, oh, you Christians. Yeah, tell them about Jesus at that point. Because see, the reason why we obey, Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to you as a Christian. No, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, that's why we're here. We're meant to be little light outposts. We're meant to be ambassadors. I mean, the, there's so many illustrations of this that I could throw out here. Those are the only two I got right now. But we'll put them right out there. We are to be the leaven for this society. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. That means he's talking about non-believers. Honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So they see what you're doing, and they want to call it evil, but they realize it's good, and they go, oh man, praise be to God. And yes, this is a slow process. It takes time. There's a reason why God chooses these agricultural things, and the leavening, and having to push that in. It's going to take time. But we must remember, God is in control, and it's on His time schedule. But it is happening. We are to be agents of change. And recognizing that this kingdom may be invisible to us, but to the spiritual world, it is visible and he sees all. And he wants to see his name glorified. So we must adore the secret work that Christ is doing in each of our hearts and let him free, let him loose in us so that we can spread the good news to those around us. Think about people that were unreachable. Think about the Apostle Paul before he was saved. Again, another example of how the Lord takes the most non-choosable, the person you would not have chosen at all to be the one that he chooses to use. He's chosen to use you. He's chosen you and planted you where you are at right now, in the job you're at, in the family you're in, in the community that you're in, to be that leaven to display the good works of the king, not to show how great you are, to not to show that you're earning your way to heaven, but to show how great the king is and people will flock to him. Our Lord promises his kingdom will grow. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you so much for this passage. Heavenly Father, this is such an encouraging thing to think, how you used so little and produce so much. Lord, we see this throughout the Bible. Lord, you use a few loaves and fishes. Lord, you, you use 12 disciples. Lord, you use a small church gathering, hiding from the authorities in an upper room in Jerusalem. Lord, and we know you can use a small gathering of people here in Gladstone to change this community, to change the world. But first, Lord, we, we acknowledge that we've still got places of the old leaven that we're holding on to. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, would do a work in us, get rid of whatever is old that we're still holding on to so that we can be the new leaven to this community. Help us not to hide our allegiance to you. Help us to have it right out in front. And when the world questions us, to point them to you. You are their only hope. You are their only way out of the mess that they're in. So Lord, I pray that we would be the change agents of that. 
Lord, thank you for this passage. Now we sing to you, Lord, and glorify you. In your name, amen.